Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Jihan Hakim, chair of the Yemeni Alliance Committee, who discusses the campaign demanding the U.S. Congress adopt a war powers resolution to end all U.S. military assistance for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace, who talks about a recent women's delegation visit to Afghanistan and the group's call for the U.S. to release billions in frozen Afghan assets to fund humanitarian aid. And Heather Digby Pardon, a contributing writer with Salon.com, who examines the methods by which the Republican Party is now working to destroy or subvert local and statewide electoral institutions to steal the next election. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson triggered an uproar with his proposed scheme to deport any asylum seekers who arrive in the UK by crossing the English Channel to Rwanda for processing. Immediately, critics, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, the head of the Church of England, criticized the plan as cruel and callous. Human Rights Watch claims that Boris Johnson's initiative is illegal in creating a two-tiered asylum system that discriminates based on a refugee's method of arrival. The agreement with Rwanda, which still must be ratified by the British Parliament, calls for paying Rwanda $157 million to process asylum seekers captured in boats crossing the English Channel. Rwanda, a nation with a poor human rights record, including charges of extrajudicial killings and torture, already has 127,000 migrants living in squalid conditions in crowded refugee camps. Boris Johnson's conservative government is facing opposition among civil servants in the Home Office. There were threats of strikes on message boards, and the head of the Home Office, Matthew Rycroft, insisted there was not enough evidence to show deportations to Rwanda would be a deterrent to migrants crossing the English Channel, and he could not be sure it would provide value for taxpayer funding. Despite the spike in global energy prices driven by sanctions imposed after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there are oil rigs sitting idle in North Dakota, which was the second biggest oil producer during the last oil boom. Now rig owners on the prairie cannot find enough skilled workers to safely run the drilling rigs. Even with incentives, including a monthly housing allowance and a daily bonus, Experienced oil workers in the Dakotas are scarce after many left the state during the pandemic. Although crude oil is at over $100 a barrel, there is little expectation that North Dakota will see a significant boost in production this year. Republican members of Congress are calling for deregulation and a push for new fossil fuel production, while progressives demand energy policies that address climate change and accuse oil executives of war profiteering and abusing oil taxpayer subsidies. A growing number of Wall Street investors are also now reluctant to invest in new oil production, with many green investors focused on the potential of wind energy and other renewable energy sources. 
In 2018, Democrat Connor Lamb won a red congressional seat in western Pennsylvania with a pledge to refuse to take corporate political action committee donations. In Congress, Lamb remained a stalwart of campaign finance reform even while being a Trump ally on the border wall. He also opposed efforts to block Trump from using the military against Black Lives Matter protesters. Today, Lamb is running an uphill battle for the Democratic nomination for U.S. Senate, trailing Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman by 20 points. Lamb, who's now turned his back on his previous pledge not to take PAC money, is now supported by the Penn Progress Super PAC, promoted by former Bill Clinton strategist James Carville and run by Cigna Insurance Company consultant Eric Smith. While coordination between a candidate and a super PAC supporting that candidate is illegal, Lamb has taken advantage of loopholes in the law when he's made phone calls to political donors with Eric Smith on the line. When Penn Progress ran a TV ad wrongly accusing progressive candidate John Fetterman of self-identifying as a democratic socialist, the ad was roundly criticized for being false. While the ad was later taken off the air, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette newspaper ran a column calling on Lamb to disavow his super PAC's deceptive ad. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As U.S. and world media provide saturation coverage of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine, another vicious war in Yemen is being prosecuted by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, with weapons supplied by the U.S. Although there's little media attention paid to the Yemen war, this nation among the poorest in the world is experiencing our planet's most severe humanitarian crisis. Nearly 400,000 people have died since the Saudi-led intervention began in March 2015, and more than 16 million Yemenis are on the brink of famine. According to the World Food Program, at least half of Yemeni children under the age of 5, 2.3 million, are at acute risk of malnutrition. The death toll in Yemen is partly attributed to the Saudi-led coalition's blockade and bombings that target civilian infrastructure which has destroyed access to food, water, and health care. A tenuous 60-day truce in the war was negotiated by the UN on April 2nd, but its fate is uncertain. Saudi Arabia and the UAE intervened in Yemen after Houthi rebels, seen as protectors of the Shia Muslim minority and allied with Iran, seized control of large portions of Yemen in September 2014, including the capital of Sana'a. When elected, President Biden said he would work to end the war in Yemen, but he continues to sell arms to the Saudi-led coalition that fuels the conflict. Your reporter spoke with Jihan Hakim, chair of the Yemeni Alliance Committee, who discusses more than 70 organizations that are calling for the U.S. Congress to adopt a war powers resolution to end all U.S. military assistance for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Since 2015, there have been almost 400,000 Yemenis who've been killed by the violence, and two-thirds of civilian deaths are due to airstrikes. 
Um, and, and those airstrikes, uh, I think what maybe we forget or are forced to forget is that these warplanes are carrying U.S.-made bombs by bomb manufacturers made here by companies such as Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, General Dynamic, and Boeing. And we've been supplying the coalition with all of these weapons that are made here. And and the coalition can't do it without us. And I think that's an important thing to remember. And I know I think uh, people hear that, oh, they'll get their weaponry elsewhere. Well, let them get it elsewhere. Uh, we don't want to have our hands be filled with the blood of Yemenis. In addition to um, the military support, the blockade of Yemen has killed tens of thousands of people and has wreaked havoc on the country. Not only is the blockade imposed by Saudi Arabia, but it's upheld by our U.S. naval ships that do patrolling. And the, the theory here is uh, trying to thwart smuggling from Iran or other countries. Um, but it, what it has actually done is starved uh, Yemenis. Over 100,000 Yemeni children have starved to death. Today, 17.4 million Yemenis are food insecure. It sounds like food is being used as a weapon. In addition to all of these you know, disastrous um, tactics, uh, the Sana'a International Airport has also been closed since 2016, which not only separated families, but also blocked necessary travel for those needing uh, medical attention outside of Yemen, especially since Yemen's hospitals have been targeted by the airstrikes. Jihan, I wanted to ask you about President Joe Biden when he was campaigning for office. He uh, talked about wanting to withdraw U.S. support for this war in Yemen that had been going on to his predecessors, both Obama and uh, Donald Trump. What action, if any, has Joe Biden taken since he's uh, entered the presidency? That's a very good question, and you're very spot on. Biden did promise during his campaign, even before he became president, that he was going to end U.S. support to the Saudi-led war in Yemen. And even when he became president in February of last year, um, he again uh, reminded the American public that he was going to end U.S. support to the Saudi-led war on Yemen. What he has done is backpedaled on his campaign promises. So we are not seeing an end to U.S. support to the Saudi-led war on Yemen. We're actually seeing the contrary. We're seeing more arms contracts being sold to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And we're also seeing Biden just last month attempting to have uh, discussions with uh, Malik bin Salman over fuel prices, um, you know, right after Russia invaded Ukraine. We're not seeing an attempt to disentangle our uh, relationship with Saudi Arabia, who's a brutal uh, monarchy itself and guilty of, you know, murdering and brutalizing Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist, um, we're seeing a relationship that is continuing to be pretty solid, and it's, it's disappointing. Now, the U.S. Congress has in the past gone on record opposing the U.S. involvement in the Yemen war. A War Powers Act, I believe, was passed but vetoed by Donald Trump. Your campaign right now is to enlist the support of the U.S. Congress to pass a resolution, a war powers resolution, to end U.S. involvement in the Yemen war. Tell our listeners about that, if you would. You're exactly right, Scott. So we've been working to pass a war powers resolution uh, ever since 2016, from House concurrent resolutions to Senate joint resolutions that vary in name, different names and numbers, all with the goal of ending the role of the U.S. in this brutal war on my family's homeland. We were successful in pushing a Yemen war powers resolution in 2019 that was bipartisan. As you said, uh, Trump vetoed it. 
And he stated that this resolution is a necessary dangerous attempt to weaken my constitutional authorities, endangering the lives of American citizens and brave service members, both today and in the future. Uh, which is not the truth from what we're hearing from from war veterans. But, you know, here we are, fast forward, we are hopeful now since Representatives Jay Paul and DeFazio recently announced their plans to introduce and pass a new Yemen War Powers Resolution that will once and for all hopefully end unauthorized U.S. involvement in Saudi Arabia's brutal uh, military campaign. We're also hearing a lot of support for the first time uh, around from over 200 representatives on both sides supporting this uh, War Powers Resolution. You know, members like Adam Schiff and Meeks, So um, I think um, this time around, we should be successful in passing a Yemen Wars Powers Resolution, and then we can set a precedent for other uh, unauthorized wars. That was Jihan Hakim, chair of the Yemeni Alliance Committee. Learn more about the campaign pressuring Congress to adopt a War Powers Resolution to end all U.S. military assistance for the Saudi-led war in Yemen by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.com. The first all-women delegation from the U.S. to Afghanistan, since the Taliban took control of the country last August, took place in late March. The delegation was sponsored by a coalition that included the peace group Code Pink and a new group called On Freeze Afghanistan, which is seeking to release billions of dollars that belong to the Afghan government. The group is calling for the release of these funds that have been frozen in U.S. banks to enable the country to address its severe hunger crisis and pay public workers, including teachers, doctors, and health care workers. The trip was planned to coincide with the reopening of girls' secondary schools in the country, but the group learned two days before departure that the Taliban had reversed their earlier decision and would not allow girls' high schools to reopen. The women delegates then decided it was even more important that they proceed with their trip. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace, and one of the trip's organizers. Here she talks about who delegates met with on their trip and their work to unfreeze Afghan government funds. Uh, we had all kinds of meetings, Melinda. It was really fascinating. We met with members of the government. We met with a lot of different girls' schools that are NGOs or private schools, and those, those are continuing to function. We met with groups that give out humanitarian assistance because the economic situation is so dire. And we met with all kinds of people running women's shelters, people working with different women's organizations that have continued under the Taliban. So we got quite a view of things. We met with the Ministry of Education and we met with the central bank. You bring up two issues. You know, one is the Taliban government and the restrictions they've put on women and girls. And the other is the bank. And we came away very convinced that freezing the $7 billion that belongs to the central bank is actually harming women and girls. And those two things should be separate. The money should be sent back to the central bank and we should be dialoguing with the Taliban to push them to give women and girls the rights they deserve. What I don't understand is why is this money in US banks in the first place? 
Well, that's a good question. And typically, the Federal Reserve Bank was seen as a very safe place to park foreign assets. And that's what the U.S. advised the Afghan government to do. Remember, the U.S. was there occupying their country for 20 years uh, and said this would be safe in U.S. banks. And then suddenly the Taliban took over and the Biden administration said, "Uh oh, uh, we're not going to give you access to this money. No matter what government is in place, the bank has a function. Uh, It is the place where businesses will put their money, where individuals put their money, uh, where the currency gets stabilized because they have the liquidity. If you take away the cash that the central bank has, people can't get their money out. We met women pensioners who were crying and saying, why are you hurting us by not allowing me to get my pension? Uh, We met women business owners who said, I can't pay the women who work for me. You've been to Afghanistan before, haven't you? Yes. I'm I'm curious if you saw anything in this, uh, your most recent trip with the Taliban fully in control again, that was positive in terms of, especially, I guess, how women and girls are being treated, but even even just in general. It's a a question I never get asked. And uh, there actually are some positive things. Security is better. Um, You might have heard that there were some recent bomb blasts uh, that happened after we left with ISIS that is still in Afghanistan targeting uh, the minority community called the Hazara. But in general, the situation is much more secure. The other thing that's uh, positive is that there's less corruption. We were told by business people that they would have to pay off so many levels of government uh, that they figured they'd lose about 20% of their profits through corruption. And now they don't have that. Do you think that the fact that it really has fallen pretty much completely off the radar of media outlets in, in, in the U.S. And, and even, I would say, even among some of the more left, you know, grassroots media outlets, is that hurting chances for uh, women's lives to improve uh, or to put maybe pressure on the, on the Taliban that, that that's not happening now? It's hurting all kinds of things. Uh, there should be much more pressure on the Biden administration to release the frozen funds. There should be much more pressure on uh, the Biden administration and Congress to be more uh, generous when it comes to humanitarian aid. You know, the U.S. pulled the plug on the Afghan budget uh, that was dependent after 20 years uh, for 85 percent of its operating expenses were coming from overseas. And that just completely dried up. The money that was used for paying the teacher salaries and the salaries for people in the hospitals and just running the government uh, dried up. Then there's a humanitarian appeal because people are so starved and it falls $2 billion short and the U.S. doesn't make that up. Now, it's important to recognize, and even President Biden said this, that the U.S. had been spending $300 million a day for 20 years on the war in Afghanistan, and now won't, now he didn't say this part, but I'm saying, now won't make up the shortfall uh, with less than what was a week's worth of spending, the $2 billion. 
So when you don't hear in the news how Afghans are struggling, how just wrong it is what the U.S. government is doing, uh, then it's hard to build up pressure. That was Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace and an advisory board member of the group Unfreeze Afghanistan. Learn more about their campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The House committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection and Donald Trump's failed attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election is preparing to hold public hearings in June to provide a detailed account of the Republican Party plot to destroy America's democratic system. According to U.S. Representative Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland, quote, the hearings will tell a story that will blow the roof off the House a story of the most heinous and dastardly offense ever organized by a president and his entourage in the history of the United States. Raskin maintains that Trump used a violent insurrection made up of domestic violent extremist groups, white nationalists, racists, fascist groups, in order to support the coup. Apart from growing concern that the former president and his inner circle won't be held accountable by the U.S. Justice Department for their treasonous actions, Trump loyalists across the country are now being appointed and running for local and state office with the explicit goal of nullifying the outcome of future legitimate elections not favorable to the GOP. At least 57 individuals who played a role in the January 6th insurrection, including some who were arrested on charges related to the Capitol attack, are running for public office in 2022. Your reporter spoke with Heather Digby Parton a contributing writer with Salon.com, who examines the methods by which the Republican Party is working to destroy or subvert local and statewide electoral institutions in order to steal the next presidential election. They're following their own playbook based on a, uh, some very uh, dubious readings of the Constitution, which most constitutional scholars reject out of hand. Um, but they're sort of using these things in, in various ways um, to sort of set up uh, a situation where Donald Trump or theoretically any other president, you know, Republican presidential candidate could basically overturn elections. I mean, this, this would be in the Electoral College. And we saw that the, this sort of the blueprint of that kind of vaguely, you know, they were kind of uh, putting it together on the run after the 2020 election. And now they're kind of starting to see, you're seeing a, a more systematic approach to it. And many of it, it led by some of the same people that were involved in, in that, including, uh, you know, most importantly, I think John Eastman, who is the uh, former constitutional lawyer for the um, Claremont Institute, uh, I don't think he's with them anymore, and he's been under scrutiny from the January 6th committee as well as possibly the Department of Justice, we're not sure, uh, for his activities during the, that post-election period. And he is now out in places. He's not just lecturing. He's going and actually kind of uh, giving people 
the playbook for how to set up a situation where you could enact what they what they call the it's a it's called the independent state legislature doctrine and the idea being that state legislatures have the ultimate say over choosing electors in presidential contests and the idea would be that if the state legislature presumably a majority republican uh, they could, you know, say uh, that they believed that the election was tainted, that it was rigged, that the Democrats stole it, whatever, the, the big lie, and then simply, you know, name their own electors to go to the Electoral College. That's that's happening on the state level. And, and what you're finding is, is that they're now at, at a point where they're starting to elect that or nominate the uh, Republicans who believe in this, for um, posts like Secretary of State or Attorney General. That just happened in Michigan just over the weekend. They elected two true believers, and there was quite a battle in Michigan over this. This is all happening within the Republican establishment in the state. It was quite a battle. There were a lot of people there who were going, no, we can't do this. These people are not right, and you know, we want to have legitimate elections. And they, they lost in Michigan, and they ended up nominating these two. Uh, to run for the uh, Secretary of State and the Attorney General's office, both of which, of course, have tremendous power and, um, you know, run, essentially run the, the state elections there. This is happening elsewhere. We saw, we've seen what happened in places like Georgia, what's going on down in Arizona. It's so tempting because there's so much crazy stuff, you know, with the, with the way these people talk and Donald Trump and his, you know, nutty, relentless insistence on the big lie and everybody's kind of rolling their eyes. This is very serious. They're, they're really doing this. And in fact, people as, you know, I don't know, I'm sure that you've talked about this guy many times over the years that you know Michael Luddick who is a very very influential highly respected super super conservative constitutional scholar has been you know his hair is on fire over this he's saying they're setting this up this is what it is he told the New York Times that you know this is not something that that we can afford to ignore that what they're doing is setting the 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 rules in place in various places for any election that is you know, and I always used to say, close enough to steal it, right? I don't think they have to be that close. I don't think it has to be close. I mean, and I'm not talking about just the popular vote. I think even on the electoral college vote, I think it would be very easy at this point because people have been so propagandized uh, by Donald Trump and by the right-wing media, which backs him every step of the way on this, on the big lie, that the elections are, you know, inherently tainted unless the Republican wins. I mean, I think that that's, that is basically what they're, they're, you know, prompting their people to uh, believe. And, uh, I, you know, I think we're going to see this play out. I mean, it's hard to say what will happen in 2022. That's not an electoral college situation. But we are going to see sort of some dry runs, I think, in these states where you've got people, if there are any elections that are contested that are close. Uh, how this kind of the, the mechanics of this are going to work. And then it's all in place for 2024. That was Heather Digby Parton, a contributing writer with Salon.com. Find a link to her recent article titled, The Big Lie is Here to Stay, Republicans Plot to Overturn Elections on Every Level, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues 
affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPPM in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, KRFY in Sandpoint, Idaho, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.